trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. <laughs> Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. This is not only dealing with the subject of having a parent who is in federal prison, but also a parent who's an extreme narcissist. Hey, Matt LeBlanc here. Devin spent a lot of her life without having her dad around. It wasn't a really comfortable conversation around the house, and so she filled in a lot of the blanks for herself until she started asking questions and finding out things that she probably would have rather not known at all. Here's Devin. And I wouldn't ask my mom because she would get upset. So I would ask my grandma, or I would ask my aunt, and they would tell me bits and pieces. And my grandma one day said, well, you know, when you were two years old, you told me that daddy had a gun and put it in mommy's mouth. And I remember we were sitting at Applebee's and she just very like nonchalantly told me this thing. And I was like, what? And she's like, I don't know if it really happened, but you told me. And that's when I told your mother that she had to get you out of that situation. Your necessary delusion. Your necessary delusion. Why do you keep lying to yourself? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and I sort of consider myself a comedian in recovery. <laughs> my sense of humor was like a bad habit, and some of the best parts of myself have only started to come out since I stopped going for the joke every time. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. If Devin sounds familiar, it's because this is not her first illusion on the podcast. And even though she's not really the kind of person to be so transparent about herself in real life, like if you accidentally ran into her at Target or something, there's a good chance she would try to get away before you saw her. I can relate. The point is, she only shows up here with her most compelling stories. The ones that she has lived and we need to hear about. Here's Devin. So I'm gonna take you back to the very beginning. I was born in 1983, one month and two days after my mother turned 19 years old. So she was a baby. And when I was born in the delivery room with my mom, it was her sister and my father's sister. And the reason that they were there is because my father was in jail at the time of my birth. And you know, my aunt took pictures of my entire entrance into this world to document it for my father who could not be there because he was at his second home. In jail. Devin's parents weren't married. I'm not 100% sure how my parents met because this is a subject that I do not talk about with my mom very often because she gets really upset. 
She feels a lot of guilt. But hey, as a mom, I have guilt like all day about everything, so I understand. Her mom was only 19. Her dad was 23. He was sort of a troubled guy, but she loved him, and even though she was attracted to the fact that he was a bad boy, she also had this fantasy that was necessary for her to stay with him. She believed she could change him. Delusion! He is tall, light brown, probably dirty blonde hair, blue eyes, very 70s looking guy, like long wavy hair, you know, always had a cigarette in his mouth in every picture I've seen. Those tight 70s pants and shirts with your like cigarette folded up into your sleeve and stuff. Do you look like him? I think I probably look more like him than I want to admit because I think I'm probably more like him than I want to admit, which is definitely a necessary delusion for me. In fact, it has been necessary for Devin to believe that she is nothing like her father because the stories about him have never been good ones. He was never a role model or something to aspire to be. He was always getting in trouble for something. It was a lot of stealing cars, a lot of vandalism, petty theft. There was some arson involved, not necessarily on churches, but buildings on church property. He was very much like a menace. A menace, but a very charming menace. He's very charismatic. He lies a lot. We all do, but go on. His whole life he has told people that he's got cancer or he's got a heart condition or any number of things just to manipulate people. He's very much one of those, you can't leave me, I will kill myself. Or you can't leave me because I have cancer and I'm dying. Very dramatic. He could paint a compelling story in order to get what he wanted. I had an aunt. She was severely developmentally delayed and just like the sweetest, sweetest woman in the world. This was uh, my mother's sister. She was also very easy to manipulate and he stole a large amount of money from her. So then like there was a lot of friction with my mom and that like side of the family because obviously she was furious that he stole from her sister. But at the same time, the delusion that she was using to keep herself going back kept growing. She loves him and he's the father of her child and she's going to make this work. So this was the before shot, the movie that was playing out as Devin was being born into the world. Her father, the menace with the heart of gold, weaving tales to get what he wanted. And her mother, the lovesick teen, who believed that she could take on the entire world, save his life and raise a baby all at the same time. Delusion. My mother filled out the birth certificate with no father. It was just her, but they were still together. So the first couple of years of my life went through this cycle of my father coming back from jail and things would be good with them and he would end up going back to jail. Devin and her mom jumped around a lot, staying with different family members. Her dad was in jail and by the time he got out, Devin was two already. They all met at her aunt's house to spend the afternoon together one day. The mood wasn't great. Her parents were broken up at the time, and her dad never took that news well. Her mom watched him play with Devin. He knelt next to her on the floor, putting stickers on a playset. And for as sweet as it was to see them playing together, finally, her fantasy of fixing him had mostly evaporated. My mom and my aunt went outside, I'm assuming to smoke a cigarette. And while they did that, my father took my mother's purse and car keys, threw them under the couch, took me, and left took off. Now, this was 1986, probably. So there's no cell phones. They just heard the car peel out of the driveway. They couldn't chase after him because they didn't know where the car keys were, where the purse was, and I was gone. No one had any idea where I was. And so he kidnapped me. A panic ran through the family. 
They started calling around to anyone they knew. Where would he go? What would he do? It was always some crazy story with him, but how dark was this chapter going to get? It could be anything. He wasn't usually the type of guy to have a plan. We were gone for probably like eight or so hours. And finally, he called my grandmother. And I think this is the only time my grandmother ever called the police on him to go and get me. And I was like unharmed. We were at the hotel behind Bob Evans. So we weren't even that far. I don't know what his plan was. I think it was more of a just dramatic thing. But I think that was kind of like the end of it for my mom. You can't fix people, Earth Monster. Can you? I don't think so. I'm no expert, but this is a reminder of a classic necessary delusion. You meet this awesome person, the bad guy with the heart of gold, or you fill in whichever archetype speaks to you, and with their presence comes an opportunity for you to rise up, fight for the side of good, be better, be more empathetic than you have ever been, and impact their behavior with positivity. That's the delusion. I think the universal truth is that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. People have to do it on their own. And shortly after this happened, my father was arrested for a crime that was completely different from the typical crimes that he is usually arrested for. This time he was arrested for sexual assault. Being in jail for petty theft and then going into federal prison until I was 23 years old, there's a jump there. And he maintains to this day that he is innocent. He never did this. To his credit, it is the only violent crime he's ever been accused of. And there are some things that don't quite add up. His thinking there is, that the cops saw an opportunity to get him out of their hair and took it. That's what he thinks happened. He could have done this for all I know, but that is what got him in federal prison. I was like two and a half years old and that's when this like really kind of starts for me, I guess. So her dad went away and Devin didn't notice. She wasn't even three years old. The visits she had spent with him at her grandparents' house, putting stickers on the playset, the eight hours she had spent alone with him when he took her, they all just became stories that she would hear about him later on. And as she grew up, she never got to know him at all, never visited him. He became a taboo subject around the house, or at least that's what she thought. They didn't bring him up. And so as time went on, Devin was left, mostly to herself, to decipher the legend of her father in prison. When I was a young kid, I didn't know anything surrounding why my father wasn't around. I knew that he was in jail. I don't know that I knew really what it meant too much, and I did not know why. And I never asked. And my mother's family never discussed it. And like, it wasn't like a whole like hush hush thing. Like no one ever like brought it up and had to be like, shush, shush, shush. Like nobody talked about it. I would talk to him on the phone when I was with my grandparents. She would still spend time with her father's parents, so they would sometimes put her on the phone to say hi. I would always have birthday presents from him or Christmas presents from him, which really was my grandmother, you know, I know that now, just saying they were from him and stuff. But I was like the kid in class, like who made Father's Day cards for grandpa because I didn't have, you know, a dad. But still, as time went on, even though it wasn't necessarily a secret, 
she could tell that she shouldn't ask the most obvious question. Where's dad? I didn't ask. And I think it's because I could tell that it made my mom sad. And to this day, I, I can't handle like seeing my mom cry or anything like that. Like it's not like any, I, I will do anything in my power to avoid making her sad. So the stakes felt super high to avoid the conversation about dad and questions like, what does jail mean? Or how come no one else's dad is in jail? She was full of questions, but even as a very little kid, she could tell she wasn't supposed to ask. And she hasn't made me be that way. That's just like, as like a mother, that's like the first love of your life. Like the sun rises and sets on that woman forever. And I don't want to ever upset her. As her father's absence became more noticeable, she began to make up a story of her own. When I was in elementary school, if friends would ask why I didn't have a dad, I would never tell them he was in jail. Because even though she didn't really know what it meant, she could tell it wasn't good. They didn't even talk about it at home, so she wasn't about to tell everybody at school. It would probably just make them upset, like it made her mom. I would say that he was dead. Or I never met him was another thing. I never knew him. I never met him. That was a way to end the conversation fast, so no one would ask any complicated follow-up questions that she didn't have answers to. In fact, the first time she ever told anyone that he was alive and in jail, it was her best friend in seventh grade. I was about 12, 13 years old. That's when I learned about him taking me. She'd been asking her aunt and grandma questions about her dad and got a lot more than she bargained for. One of the first really specific stories she heard was about when he took her. And then I got really scared to see his family. So I started like refusing to go to my grandparents' house because I got this fear that I was going to be kidnapped. And they've never made me feel like that before. Like I have spent the first 13 years of my life with these people and everything's been fine. And it was at the same time at Applebee's that Devin's grandma told her the story about her dad putting the gun in her mom's mouth. Pretty intense. Way more than 13-year-old Devin was expecting to hear about this guy that she knew virtually nothing about. Here she had been wondering who her dad was, and one of the first things that she finds out is that she may have witnessed this really unforgivable, violent, heinous act. Not off to a great start, Dad. The sun rises and sets on that woman forever. That would teach Devin to ask too many questions about Dad. Who wanted to be carrying around answers like that? So from then on, the subject of Dad came up only when it was completely necessary. When my mom went to enroll me at middle school, they informed us right in front of me that I could not use my mother's last name. They said, you cannot enroll her as Devin Kennedy. That is not her legal name. And my mom's like, what are you talking about? Yes, it is. At some point, my father, with the help of his parents, had submitted some sort of paperwork, documentation of a birth certificate with him on it and had legally changed my last name. So from then on, my last name is not Kennedy. Believe it or not, she had never known her father's last name before. And now, all of a sudden at 13, she's finding out that it's actually her last name. Suddenly, it's not so easy to ignore that she doesn't know anything about her father. It feels like maybe she doesn't know something about herself. If she's like him, then what does that make her? I was Devin Kennedy, and I was very proud of it. Everyone knows a Kennedy in Cleveland Heights. My mom has four siblings who are all just exactly like her. The life of the party always knows everybody. Just like these hippie weirdos. Like, that was my family growing up. And so that name was really important to me. Like, Devin Kennedy was like, that was a, my identity, you know? And now, like, you're telling me right now at 13 years old that I'm not allowed to be the person I am. They tried to make me use that name when I would write my name on papers, and I refused to do it. It only becomes more and more apparent how important our names are to us, how personally we take them. They're like if our egos had a title, 
Names feel so innately connected to who we are, and yet they're sort of cosmetic at the same time. Devin's name was her identity, and, at the same time, it was changed without her knowledge by simply submitting some paperwork. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of the complications that her faraway father was going to cause for her. And that is also when other weird things started happening. I started getting things sent to me at school because I had mentioned that I had stopped going to see my grandparents. Her father's parents. So my father started sending me things to school. He would send me gifts. He would send me birthday cards, Christmas cards. And I don't know if the school was afraid of getting sued or what, but I would get called down to the guidance counselor regularly and have to deal with this stuff. Stuff from this guy that she had never really met. As if being 13 wasn't hard enough already. So pulled out of class and have to go down there and open these like weird birthday presents or a card. And the school was also sending him my report cards and stuff. So he would like in the cards, like write to me, I see that you're struggling in math or whatever. And then I'm just like, how dare you? Like, you don't know me. Don't talk to me about how I need to do better in school. Like stay in your lane, bro. I don't even know you. At 13, my dad couldn't tell me to pick up my shoes without hearing an opinion. I always dreaded my birthday coming up because I knew when my birthday was coming up. I'm like, oh God, I'm just waiting. He would send like little things. They would be usually like in like a brown kind of like paper wrapping almost. And she would sit uncomfortably under the fluorescent lights of the guidance office in the middle of her Tuesday, third period, and unwrap her unwanted gift while her counselor watched. The tension was heavy in the room. They both knew it was a weird situation. They both knew her dad was in prison. I always hated my guidance counselor because I associated my guidance counselor with this stuff. And so be sitting in his office, having to like just sit there and like read this bullshit and like look at this, you know. And sometimes the guidance counselor would be like, oh, what a great artist. He was a great artist, remember? And I'm like, yeah, I hope his hands fall off. Like he's ruining my life. Sounds like the guidance counselor couldn't read the room which is surprising because Devin was putting out a pretty distinct vibe. And usually like right in the guidance counselor's office, I would just like rip it up and throw it in the garbage. Like, I don't care. It was always like cheap stuff that I never would have like ever liked. And maybe I would have liked it, but because of where it came from, I didn't. I think I remember a bracelet one time, but it was never anything like big. I remember one time he wrote me a letter and told me that he had heart disease and I wrote back and I said, good, I hope you keep smoking. And I made the guidance counselor mail it to him. So he would know that I'm like, stop trying to contact me. It's not going to get you anywhere. She would walk back to class, back to her real life, and she wouldn't tell anyone. Sometimes her best friend, Shannon, sometimes her mom. But a lot of times she just didn't want to breathe any more air into it. So she would bury it like a secret and try to recover fast from the disruption. And then in eighth grade, one day I got called down to the office and they said, you have a phone call. And so I got like super scared. She knew it was him right away, but it couldn't actually be him, right? The legend of her menaced father who had missed her birth and put a gun in her mother's mouth and kidnapped her for eight hours in a hotel room behind Bob Evans. It was like being told that the boogeyman was on the phone for you. It couldn't actually be him. He was just old stories and unwanted gifts wrapped in brown paper. He wasn't a real person. I picked up the phone, and it's this deep voice that I don't know. Devin, don't be scared, it's your father. And I'm like, what? The boogeyman isn't real. 
There couldn't actually be someone on the phone, but there was. She was shocked. She couldn't speak. What was she supposed to say to a ghost? She held the phone to her face and looked around for an answer. And then the receptionist was standing behind me and she was mouthing to me, you can hang up. And so I did. She didn't say anything. She put the phone back on the receiver and walked back to class like it never happened. When I first heard this story, of course I was only thinking about Devin. How uncomfortable it must have been for her. How anxious and intruded upon and angry she must have felt. But as I listen back, what occurs to me is the desperation in her father's reaches. The way he anticipated her on the phone by telling her not to be scared. The way he tried to give her advice about school and the notes that he would send her. The way he drew her pictures and sent gifts on her birthday. And all of the thought, even if it was misguided, that he had put into these actions. The way he was trying so hard to be a father from far away inside a federal prison. Delusion. It's not hard to imagine how necessary this fantasy must have been to make him keep going. I wish I could tell you there was relief after that, that Devin was going to sail into a happier time, unbothered by her father's reaches, that she was going to lose herself in a delusion and stop dreading her birthday, that she was going to fall in love or light the world on fire with her sense of humor. But sometimes stories don't change when we want them to. Lots of times, real life persists. I think it was in 11th grade, I got a package sent to the guidance counselor and it was around my birthday and it was two cassette tapes. How else do you talk to someone who won't take your calls? And at school, they made me go into this like back room in the library and listen to these tapes. And it was like three hours long of him talking, giving me his sob story of life explaining to me why I have been brainwashed by my family. I only don't talk to him and his family because my family has brainwashed me. And that's when you really start thinking about the fact that like the deep narcissism of this man who you don't care about your daughter, period. You care about yourself. You right. care about feeling like I belong to you. I am your property and you're going to make that known. And mind you, we didn't talk about this. They didn't brainwash me at all. Like we, it was not something we discussed. Like any opinion I have from my father, he gave me from his complete lack of boundaries and by just kind of like forcing himself on me. And it's already hard enough to be a kid and to be like a teenage girl and questioning everything already or questioning who you are and... I was always very worried about becoming like this person. Becoming like her father, the menace. So if I ever felt like I was being like pushing myself on something, like being like too much, then I would start to be like, oh my God, am I like this man? And that was the really big question. Was she like him? Was she a narcissist that wanted to covet her loved ones to satisfy her own selfish ego? Probably. I think that's what a lot of us do. <laughs> am I projecting? Of course, it's never quite that conscious. So her suspicion manifested in just this little bit of anger that she held against herself. Yeah, it's probably like where a lot of my angst came from and a lot of my like issue with like men <laughs> came from, you know, whereas like, you know, how dare you try to stake this claim over me when you do not know me? Who could blame you? Yeah, I feel like a huge part of why I was the way I was in high school, like I was very uninterested in schoolwork. 
to the point where I almost never did any of it. I refused to get my temps. Her temporary driver's license. Because I didn't want any legal documentation with his name on it. That like impacted my ability to have even like freedom. So it held me back from a lot of things in that respect. If you can't tell, this delusion has affected her in all kinds of different ways. And it's affected the way she's seen herself. I mean, it made me feel like maybe like a little bit like trashy, which I don't, I don't want anyone to think that that's what I believe. But as a kid, that's kind of like how I felt like if people find out about this, they're going to think I'm like just trash or that it meant that like my mother was a bad person. I didn't want anyone to find out about that either because I didn't want them to judge my mom with making friends. I think that a lot of, I don't know, maybe a lot of wanting to go unnoticed Growing up had to do with that because maybe if more people noticed me, more people would find out that I had this horribly embarrassing situation, which why should I be embarrassed? I'm not the one who was in jail. It was his decisions that put him there. But it definitely made me more guarded and, you know, who I would share things with. I didn't date. And I think that's because I just kind of naturally was very, I guess, like skeptical of men and boys and how they might be and treat people and stuff. So I didn't really date until I was like 18, 19. I think it's affected my self-confidence in a way where during my most formative years, I kind of always had to think about the fact that I don't want people to find out who I really am. Oh, let's just think about that one for a minute. She didn't want people to find out who she really was. That really might be the most universally relatable point in her whole story. It's what makes the awareness of these delusions so important. Because most of us walk around with shame or secret interior lives that are built on unfounded ideas. And we use those stories to keep ourselves from opening up to each other. On the day I turned 18, that's when I kind of like reclaimed everything. My mother picked me up early from school. We went down to the courthouse. I changed my name. And that was the first thing I did when I turned 18. So after we graduated high school, the next time I heard from him is when I was 23 years old living in Lakewood. And he had somehow gotten a hold of my phone number, called me. I picked up the phone. He said, Devin, it's your father. And I backed into a parked car because I was so like flustered. I hung up. I went home, called my mom, freaking out. She didn't know he was getting out of jail. Nobody knew. He had gotten two sentences of 25 years back to back. So, you know, 50 years. So I was just hoping that he would just be there forever and, you know, whatever. And that's how it would be. But as she digested the information, she found that for as angry as she was, she was also very curious. Even though I've been so angry at him my whole life for pushing himself on me, I've always kind of empathized. Like, how sad is this man that he has a kid out here that he doesn't know? You know, can people change? Can they be better people? Has being in prison for... Two decades changed who he is. So I agreed to meet him when I was 23. She chose a diner near her house on the west side of Cleveland called My Friends. Her fiancé at the time went with her. I mentioned him to paint the picture, but he was a very quiet guy. Really just a pair of eyes. This was Devin's show. So I do remember that it was raining and we met at this little diner. He was sitting inside waiting for me. And as soon as he saw me, he started crying. At long last... Her father, the menace, in the flesh. I did give him a hug, which I remember feeling very sketched out about. I knew what he looked like because every so often I would get this like curiosity and I would Google him and I would find his inmate profile. And, you know, so I would see like his current mugshot and stuff. The 70s looking guy with the wavy, dirty blonde hair and blue eyes. 
a little worse for the wear two and a half decades later. Uh, I was surprised at how tall he was. But yeah, those are the two things I remember thinking. He Wow, he's really tall. And I, this is weird that I'm hugging this stranger. Devin sat down at the table stiffly, as though she had just been called to the guidance office. He was wearing just jeans, like old man jeans and tennis shoes. And he had just like a button up shirt and this really ugly, like brown leather jacket. I feel like if you saw this dude like walking down the street, you might look at him and say, ah, oh, he's done some time. Like, I feel like, you know, he gives off that vibe. He's got prison tattoos. Like he's got like those like weird blob looking ink eagles on his arm type of thing. They sat looking at each other, his eyes soft and full of tears and hers tense and untrusting. Before we started talking, I said, we will not be discussing my mother. And I just kind of like put that as my boundary. I'm sure you can tell that my mother is a sacred subject to me with anybody, but especially with this man. Because when I told my grandma when I was two years old that he put a gun in my mother's mouth, did it really happen? Or was that just the imaginings of a two-year-old? I don't know and I'll never know because I will never ask my mother for the specific reason that it might be true and it might open a memory that she doesn't need to deal with. But you're not going to talk to me about my mother because if you did do that to her, you're lucky I'm not clawing your eyes out. Just to remind us the kind of nerves Devin was carrying with her. So that was my boundary. We're not talking about my mom. So he didn't. The entire time he's just talking about himself and talking about why he was innocent, why he never should have been in jail in the first place. He wasn't asking any questions. Not a great start, Dad. Devin was waiting to feel his curiosity about her. This was the first time they'd met since she was two years old. He's not asking me what I like. He's not asking me what kind of music I listen to, what kind of movies I like. None of that. The waitress finally came and released some of the tension. What'd you guys order? Mozzarella sticks. And I only remember that we ordered mozzarella sticks because that's like the only thing I would ever get from my friends. And all we drank was water and coffee. I remember my ex-husband kind of sitting there just like not talking. He just like sat there and just didn't really talk or anything. The waitress put the food down and they all stopped talking to take a bite. Devin watched her fiance. Her fiance watched his mozzarella stick and her dad watched the door. A police officer walked in. He got very uncomfortable. He's jittery too. He looks around a lot. And he was just like kind of kept like looking like over his shoulder. He said he was always just waiting for someone to take him again. Delusion. Dad was full of them. And I'm obviously not discounting anything that Devin experienced, but only to say that this sounds like a tough lunch for everyone. One thing that he says all the time is that he was taken from me. So that's how he talks about being in jail. He says, when I was taken from you, which I consider like the greatest gift of my life. Sorry, but you know, that's kind of just true. But yeah, like I just basically sat there and let him talk at me about why he was innocent and why he had this horrible injustice done to him. And he was suing all of these people and he was going to be a millionaire because he was suing them because he had been wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted. And we're all going to find out eventually. Oh, right. That was the other story her dad showed up telling. And I don't know if it was a delusion. Devin doesn't know either. Well, it's been, I don't know, almost 20 years now since he's like been, I, I, whatever, like nothing's happened yet. He's not, he's not been vindicated. I don't, and like I said, I don't know if he did it or What's not. I, I don't know if he did it or not. I, I can't speak to it at all. But if he didn't, he still hasn't gotten his millions that he's been telling everybody he's going to get. Was he really suing people? I don't know. You don't know if that was real? No, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't believe, I don't believe a lot of things that he says Devin, I'm going to tell you, my perception of you is somebody who, my perception is that you want to be the voice of the voiceless. 
sometimes, I think. Would you say, is this accurate? I think so, yeah. I see you get real vocal on the internet about the injustices in the world, mm-hmm. right? The first thing that I thought when you got in touch with me about this story was you wrote in the text message that your father had been in prison for 23 years and that you never wanted to be anything like him. Right. And when you said that, I thought that's the delusion. The delusion was that she was nothing like him. So this has pushed her to play that role, to be the voice of the voiceless, to to fight for the, the underdog or for the good guy. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any truth to that? I do. And you know, one thing too, that I think is important to note about my situation is even though I was born to a teenage mother and my father was in prison, I still had an extremely privileged life, which a lot of children don't live that way. My mother had tons of help from her family. We had people to live with. Granted, I probably lived in 12 different places growing up, but always had someone to stay with. There was never a worry that we were going to be homeless. There was never a worry that I wasn't going to get fed somehow. You know, my mother was able to put herself through college, work full time because I had grandparents, aunts, uncles to help and watch me. And I feel like if I'm born with these advantages, I have to do anything and everything I can to speak up for people who can't or speak up for people who aren't listened to. Because if I had been born under different socioeconomic circumstances, who knows where I'd be right now. If you're interested in hearing more about Devin's story, I recommend you go back to season one of this podcast and listen to her two-part episode called Love Game. She's happily married with two kids now, and she recognizes the ways that her relationship with her father have helped shape the kind of mother she is. I remember saying stuff when I was younger, like, I will never treat my children like my feelings are what they need to consider. My kids are always going to know that their feelings are what are more important to me, not my feelings. Because it was very apparent to me from a very young age that he did not care about me. Delusion? I think that he probably loved me in the only way he knew how. And he probably loved me because I was an extension of himself. And I think he's obsessed with himself. Their relationship has been spotty over the 15 years since they reunited at the diner. They found a phone relationship for a while and realized they had a bunch of things in common after all. I love Motown music, and I was super irritated that he did too. You know, I I, I don't want to be anything like this man. And then like when he asked me about my favorite movie, I was like, oh, well, you probably haven't seen it. It's like this weird, you know, blah, 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 Harold and Maude. He's like, oh, I love Harold and Maude. I saw it in the theaters. And I was like, God damn it. Don't take that from me. That's my movie. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know, you don't like that. You know, the one thing that he didn't like that made me so happy was he hates rap music. And I'm like, I love like 90s rap. And so the fact that he didn't like that, I was like, all right, there's my thing. Fine. Like, at least I got a a piece of myself that's mine. 90s rap music. That's the part he can't touch. They didn't talk a lot, but he was trying. I would be fine with him texting me. But then he started texting me every single day, multiple times a day, calling me every day. And I said to him, I said it nicely. I know I did because I obsess over saying things to make sure I'm not hurting someone's feelings. But I basically said to him something along the lines of like, you got to pump the brakes. Like, I, I, I can't talk to you every day. Like, I'm an adult. I live on my own. I'm doing my thing. Like, I don't have time to stop my day and talk to you. 
and he flipped out and he said, you're telling me to fuck off and I'm your father and I don't want to be your friend. I want to be your father. And that's the relationship we're going to have. And da, 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 da. And I was like, whoa, no, that's not what's happening here. No. I'm like, if you want to have any relationship with me, it's going to be on my terms. We can talk sometimes when I say it's okay. And that's it. And he said, no. He said, if you're not going to let me be your father, I don't want anything to do with you. And I said, okay, no skin off my back. Like, that's fine. He would text sometimes after that. She wouldn't answer. He started calling her again and again, and she finally changed her phone number. Let him send cassette tapes if he wanted to make his voice heard. What did she care? There was no guidance counselor left to force her to listen to them. And it was after I, you know, moved back to the east side. I went through my whole situation. Season one, love game. This girl can tell a story. You know, got divorced, got remarried, got pregnant, and then start getting really introspective about parents and relationships. And then I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I should start thinking about talking to him. How would I feel if my child one day doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Like that would kill me. That would break my heart. But she still hasn't really acted on it. One of her kids is 10 now. And just like that, another decade passed until a couple years ago, he reached out to her on Facebook, a completely different approach. Her dad, the menace tried being respectful, really respectful of my boundaries, asked if it was okay. If I would give him my phone number, I said no, and he said I understand, which I wasn't expecting. I thought he was going to like flip out. So we would only correspond on Facebook Messenger. And then the election and stuff started happening. He shared with me like that he was very, and this pissed me off so bad, super, super liberal. Just like Devin. And this part is a lot closer to her than 90s rap. And super on the same page as me. And I'm like, oh man, maybe it's time for me to become like an old racist conservative. No, never in life. But I'm like, you know, I don't want to be anything like this man. And, but he really, he kind of helped me through the fears and anxieties of like everything. He would, we would text each other and I would say, I'm so freaked out. There's this pandemic now that's going to happen and what's going on with this election and I'm so scared about what's going to happen and he would be like it's going to be fine it's going to be okay like I know that this is what's going to happen and blah 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 and not like a father-daughter relationship it's still not feeling like that at all but it's something and it is a very far cry from hanging up on him in the guidance office it's growth he'll ask me every so often if we can meet and I will put it off and I will use COVID for as long as I can to say that, you know, I'm just not ready for that because it's just not safe yet. My kids can't get vaccinated. So no, we can't meet yet. So that's like now that's my safety net with that there. You know, at this point, if we ever do meet, he's got to get through the big guns. Her husband. And I pity anyone who would have to meet Adrian in that kind of a situation because he is very protective. But she's not scared like she used to be. She's gotten to know him. I think I've kind of come to terms with the fact that I am a lot like this man. I think it's made me think of a lot of nature versus nurture type of things because I am the most anxious person in the world. I have these amazing panic attacks and I have vertigo and I have all sorts of fun shit that goes along with it. And he's got every single one of those things too. And I didn't grow up with him. But it's okay now because none of us are only one thing. So being like her dad doesn't mean that she's a menace. It's nothing to be ashamed of. 
We have a very similar sense of humor, which is wildly inappropriate probably to like, if you're talking to your daughter, but I don't think of him as my father, really. Nothing that's like, you know, creepy or anything, just like stuff that like. I think the biggest thing that it's taught me is that I want to be the best parent that I can and make sure that my kids feel seen and heard and comfortable and make sure that they know that even though they are kids, their boundaries are valid. I've just kind of gotten to a point where I realized I spent a lot of time being angry and a lot of time being embarrassed and a lot of time having that affect who I allowed myself to be growing up, which you would never get that clarity as a kid, so it's moot to even say that. But if I had that, I don't think I would have been as willing or eager to blend into the scenery because I just, I didn't want to stand out in any way because I just didn't want anyone to find out like that I had this weirdness going on in my family. It's okay to have traits with someone that I don't want to be like. It's okay to assert myself and put up these boundaries. It's okay if my children decide that they need to put up these boundaries. And I think still that the best thing that ever happened to me in my life was him being in prison because I don't know what I would have dealt with otherwise. I want to thank Devin for her story today and for the good reminder of the subtle way that shame can slide into our story, bend our behavior, and twist our paths. If you've enjoyed Devin's story and you have not listened to Love Game in season one, you should go right now because it's really fun to listen to. And collaborating with her on these episodes has taught me a lot about my own delusions and the identity of this podcast. As always, Devin, this is an open door to come back and share your delusions anytime. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can go write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That is the Purple Podcast app on your phone. Or you can send us your love on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. If you have a delusion of your own and you want to share it, you can email us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. Reach out to me on Instagram at yesmatthew or call the voicemail at 323-540-4540. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. Have you ever stolen something? A lot. When I was, ew, I never thought about this. Okay. Oh my God. When I was like 17, I was at Nordstrom. This is the first time I was at Nordstrom and I saw a silver thumb ring and it was $20. And I was like, that is the, so ridiculous. This is a little silver band. It's $20. You got to be out of your mind. How dare they? I'm taking it. And that's the first thing I ever took. So then all through my teenage years and stuff, I always carried really big purses. I would take everything. I would, the entire caddy at Denny's, I would put the entire thing in my purse. I would take full dishes, an entire thing of ketchup. I took a coffee pot. I would just take stuff all the time. And I don't know what that was about.
I don't know if I thought it was funny. I don't know why I did that. But man, I had like 12 caddies from Denny's in my in my bedroom. And I would steal cups from every restaurant I went to. Every single one. Just like all, I would just put cups. I would throw like whole like things of silverware in my, I was a teenager. Like, did I need silverware? No, but I'm taking it just because it's there and I'm going to do it, you know? And sometimes I think it would be like, will they notice? I would take menus too. Did it give you a little rush when you would steal something? It would almost make me feel like I was going to throw up, like I was going to get in trouble. So I don't know why I did it. But I did it all the time. I mean, stealing from restaurants, first of all, pretty pedestrian. <laughs> also kind of sounds like you pushed it to its limits, though. Yeah. But I'm sort of like, why would you keep the caddies? I don't Like, know. it almost sounds inconvenient. It is. Well, and I would steal from stores, too, but not as often. Because I just, I don't know, like, that felt like too much. And like, but no, I would steal shoes, though. Oh, like where would you steal shoes from like like walmart which like you know fuck the waltons so i would like have like a dirty pair of shoes and then i would leave them and put on like a new pair of shoes and leave my old dirty ones there and just have new shoes so you've never made this connection though with your dad no and i wonder if he did some things just to find out if he could do you know the kinds of things that he stole i mean cars i think he would steal car radios and stuff too and then he would steal money like jewelry stuff that he could like hawk that people's houses i don't he would never like break into people's houses but like if he was at your house chances are high if he went to the bathroom at some point he might have moseyed into somebody's room and taken something i see which i would never i never did anything like that listen a denny's caddy is a victimless crime delusion